these leaders who have been able to pivot and to move ahead, the one common trait they all have is that they are not afraid of making changes. I think as individuals, when we worry too much, we overthink things, we don't move. Welcome to Upon Arrival, a show that uncovers stories and strategies that make up all the moving parts of business events tourism with me, Adelaine Ng. We're at the pointy end of the year, and what a year it's been. Do you actually remember the day that COVID-19 started interrupting your life? I remember it clearly. My husband and I were on holiday in March in Malaysia. We were at the tail end of our time there, having last meals with friends and family, when we found out that the government in our home state of Victoria, in Australia, had mandated a two-week quarantine for anyone travelling in. There was a bit of drama over the next few days, but cut a long story short, we found ourselves at Kuala Lumpur International Airport and finding out that if our flight had been booked for just a few hours later, at the stroke of midnight, we would have been barred from leaving the country and not made it home. Now, I don't know if things felt that crazy in publishing newsrooms, but we're about to find out. Joining us today is someone who's been covering the business events tourism industry for more than a decade, starting out as a reporter and is now chief editor for one of Asia-Pacific's leading travel trade publishing names, TTG Asia Media. She is, in fact, the editor I report to, and that's Karen Yue joining us from Singapore. How are you, Karen? I'm very well, thank you, Adeline. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time. Did that story resonate with you at all? Did you have a personal drama over oh, yeah. uh, the lockdowns that came down so suddenly? <laughs> Our lockdowns came down much later after the initial news of uh, the pandemic. But I remember sitting in my at my desk uh, at home on Chinese New Year Eve, um, tracking the developments and speaking to industry uh, friends for stories to run on our news wires. That was quite impactful and, and memorable for me because you don't realize how bad it was um, at that point. Well, looking back now, it, it seems that that was a long time ago, huh? but it wasn't really. <laughs> I suspect it was a bit stressful at the office too when the pandemic started to shut down borders everywhere. Yeah, so when the news first broke sometime in, in late Feb, like I said, uh, the news hasn't quite trickled down to the rest of Asia yet. The situation was more dire in China, as we all know. But of course, over time, when um, the cases start reaching the rest of Asia, the Asian governments and the people are quite, kind of familiar with the situation because we had SARS back in the early uh, 2000s. And uh, we responded fast. We knew what we had to do. Um, so the lockdown came. Well, of course, the businesses were affected as well. And in the newsroom, we, we have been covering uh, the situation right from the beginning. What kinds of stories were you hearing about in terms of impact on the events and incentives industry? For incentives, a lot of trips were cancelled. For meetings and exhibitions, of course, group gatherings were not allowed for a period of time. But um, compared to you know leisure travel, I think the meetings and events industry have not suffered as, as much because we were able to still get some activity going uh, online, completely virtually or, you know, in a hybrid format. So live and a bit of um, online. I've seen a lot of event agencies being able to pivot to deal with the crisis and to thrive even. There are even agencies that have, since the lockdown, continue to deliver a lot of uh, digital events. So it's not completely zero business for them, which is a great uh, thing to know. In terms of convention centers, we're also seeing 
uh, venues that have innovated and created their own hybrid event solutions or hybrid uh, studios to support clients who still want to get you know some form of communications going and to be able to broadcast from the venue. So again, venues are not being left um, completely empty. Everyone's wondering how fast it will take for the industry to truly recover. I mean, how slow, how hard is it going to be? Where are the best pivot maneuvers? But I also uh, wanted to get to know you as a person because a lot of people, you know, they read uh, what you write, but the person that is behind the writing, I've only been reporting on business events, uh, tourism for a few years, but You've been at it for more than 10 years. When you started, what was the industry like? How different was it becoming just before COVID hit? Well, wow. Um, <laughs> the business events industry in, in, in Asia, not just Singapore, in Asia, uh, is a very busy one. For a long time, uh, the world has come to recognize that Asia is the center of economic activity. So a lot of international events are starting to see Asia as um, a place to meet, uh, to grow their business, to grow their networks. So we're getting, we have been getting a lot of business. Of course, all this is prior to COVID. Um, but even now with COVID, the eyes of the world are still on Asia. Because um, if you look at how the recovery has been, a lot of uh, business events have started to return in China. Uh, but of course, China is a, is a whole different story because it, its market in itself is, is a huge market to depend on. It's pretty self-sustaining, isn't it, in that country? It's so huge. It is. It, it is. doesn't need anyone else, really. <laughs> You know, it's funny because every time when I talk to uh, the industry and they all want to know, you know, where they can they can take uh, case studies from to see how recovery could be for them. And everyone would look to China. But really, China, is, it's a whole different game. Um, I've been speaking to some event um, organizers and, and venue operators in China. And there hasn't been a lot of astringent um, have and safety protocols as you see the rest of Asia. So, for example, in, in Singapore, when you step into a public facility, you still need to be masked up, you know, and, and there's a lot of uh, contact tracing uh, procedures to, to, to fulfill. In China, yes, you still have the contact tracing, but masks are no longer quite uh, a common sight and people are able to attend or to go into a public facility without the mask if they want to. That's really interesting because if they are not wearing masks, although they're a little bit more, you know, they may be doing a little bit more of the hand sanitizing. Mm -hmm. And if they don't really get uh, new cases enough to be so worried about that they need to shut everything down again, mm -hmm. that could be something that the rest of us are watching as well and that we could maybe follow with a little bit more confidence, a little bit more relaxed. Yeah, I think it really depends on how countries are coping with the virus. Here in Singapore, the government has just announced that it's no longer compulsory for kids under six years old to wear a mask when they're out of the house. So perhaps if things start to get under control, we could possibly see a mask not being mandated in, uh, in time to come. But personally, I feel that we have already gotten so used to being masked up. We might as well just continue with it. <laughs> You know, ever since this pandemic, right, uh, and being masked up, I've not caught a cold. That's been six months of me not having a cold. Like. That is true. I remember the conversations being, uh-oh, you know, in Australia, winter is coming, so this COVID thing is just going to get worse because it's normally flu season. But 
in actual fact, it's been the other way around where there are so few cases of the flu that we think, oh, this might be a a good thing to keep going. Yeah, but I am struggling I with the mask, I have to say, because that thing just fogs up. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, I'm just desperate to pull the thing off. <laughs> because we wear glasses, yes. That's a, that's a problem for us. <laughs> well, with or without glasses, I'm like, I think I would rather not have this on. But you are right in saying that, you know, it has prevented very much the spread of flus and colds. So we're yeah. not as sick as we might otherwise have been or not as frequently as before. But I guess some people are, I mean, some people are also looking at Europe and other parts of the world where some meetings have resumed. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. What lessons do you think we can learn from that? I mean, when you talked about China and how we can't really look at it wholesale and apply that in our local situation, what are your thoughts when you look at Europe? We, we can't uh, use Europe as a, as a uh, perfect example for Asia as well because in Europe, at least the neighbouring destinations are somewhat uh, similar in progress in the use of technology, for example, uh, in contact tracing. But here in, in Asia, Asia is so fragmented. Uh, different countries are progressing at different stages. Different countries have different approaches to contact tracing. For example, in Cambodia, there isn't actually a strict uh, contact tracing uh, program. Whereas in, in Singapore, in Malaysia, in Thailand, there, there are uh, systems in place. So it's hard then to even have um, regional events opening up, which is why in Asia, we're still seeing a lot of hybrid events where Singapore could host the hub, uh, the main event, with regional participants and international participants dialing in remotely. So I think the hybrid format is, is going to stay for a while um, at least for Asia. Well, that's the key thing, isn't it? As long as different countries, even different states within the same country have different rules, this is going to be very difficult. And that's the conversation that we're having in Australia as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's also the reason why um, travel is hard to resume, even in this region, because as long as uh, as a government isn't sure how the other nations are doing in terms of um, pandemic control, they, they will be hesitant to reopen their borders to them. We've seen in Singapore, uh, you know, the government has formed six reciprocal lanes, green lanes, with destinations such as uh, Malaysia, uh, South Korea, Japan, and selected cities in China. But then even with these reciprocal lanes, the visa requirements uh, are different. The health and safety protocols prior to departure and upon departure are also different. So it's really quite complex. Uh, Even if you want to travel, you have to be very clear about the entire procedure before you can even uh, proceed. And all of that adds to extra cost, doesn't it, for the oh, organisers, yeah, for, sure. for you know everyone involved. And uh, some people are predicting that uh, the price of travel is going to go up. Is that your view as well? Um, I asked that question, you know, to uh, Subash, who's the, uh, the head of the Asian uh, Association for Asian Airlines. And he said that it's still very much a, a demand and supply game. So if airlines are still restricted in their routes and their their capacity, we're going to see uh, demand coming up but not enough supply. So the airfares might be affected. Might go up in that instance. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But someone also told me that during the the financial crisis or just after the 9-11 incident where people's uh, confidence in flying uh, really plunged. And so um, a European airline, in order to get people to fly again, decided to give zero fares uh, for everyone to just try flying again and to get back on, on the road to recovery. And that actually went well. And ever since people started, uh, friends and family started to follow suit and then, you know, the flying came back again. So it really depends on how the market's going to react. At this point, 
we still can't gauge how the airlines are going to react because uh, you know routes are still very much limited. Oh, that's interesting. Um, a lot of people are wondering whether it's still a good time to be in the industry, whether they should, you know, just exit the industry altogether. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's 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 a very hard un- uh, question to answer at the link because um, I love this industry. I love it so much that I can't I can't see myself doing anything other than writing about business events and travel, really. But of course, we have to survive. So say if you lose your job now, right? It's going to be hard to find a job um, in the same industry now. It might be a good strategy to just exit, do something different, learn a new skill maybe. And then when times are better, come back again, refreshed. We do what we can to survive. What about, is it still a good time to be a writer for the industry or for anyone to join um, this industry for people who have been aspiring to? I mean, as a beginner, someone who's just entering without any experience, for example, because they're now seeing a lot of job losses. There are a lot of job losses, but you know, in bad times is when the newsroom is the busiest. This is a time where you can write a lot. There's so much content to create um, out of this crisis. Um, and it doesn't have to be all negative news, you know. It, it would inspiring news um, to get people moving on, on what they, they have to do next uh, to thrive. Um, if you have always wanted to write about business events and tourism, this is also a great time to come in to do. Start off as a freelancer. Uh, because companies are going to be hard-pressed to have uh, full-time employment at this moment. But start off as a freelancer, expand your horizons, um, try you know as many angles uh, as you could, you could take in, in this varied industry. And when things are better, you'll find more assignments coming your way. What about all the um, advertising that supports publishing magazines? That's been on the downtrend yes, for a has. number of years. It's not unique to travel magazines or you know business event magazines. That's been true for any print media. So what do you see as the future of the publishing trade? I've been in this industry for 15 years. Um, even when I joined, there was already conversations of how print is going to die. But 15 years later, uh, print is still around. The thing is, um, different markets approach uh, print publications differently. There are some markets that still want and rely on print, perhaps because um, you know internet access is not uh, prevalent or not secure. Um, so print is still very much preferred. Uh, what we're seeing, even before the COVID pandemic, is that yes, traditional advertising has gone down, but advertorials have gone up unique uh, ways of communicating uh, via print has gone up. So that's the reason why I started the content lab division within editorial because we were getting so many requests from uh, regular advertisers asking if editorial could help guide them in their communications in native articles or in sponsored content or paid content that I decided that, you know, that's money to be made there, right? So we started that, that division. And even during this pandemic, my editor who's running that division is still rather busy actually. We are still getting um, jobs in, in that division, so she's feeding us. Oh, that's very reassuring to hear about. But you've mentioned earlier in our chat how you have seen some industry players pivoting and doing quite well, even in this downturn. What are some examples you've seen that are you know, the bright, shining spots in the industry? Uh, within the business events industry, most of the pivots are from physical event management to digital event management. So, for example, CHAP events, uh, it's based out of Singapore with offices um, in the region and in Europe as well. 
they have started a digital division called Chap Labs to specialize in supporting events that are, are to be held online. So they're going into digital event production, basically. Uh, I've also seen example in RV Worldwide in Malaysia that has also started to do uh, uh, digital events uh, management. And according to the owner, Francis, they have been able to deliver 95 events during this crisis, which is amazing when, when a lot of physical events yeah. are dead, right? So these are, are some good examples of event agencies that have been able to move quickly from physical to digital to keep at least some business coming in. And all of them are inspiring in their own ways. It's, it's not easy for um, an agency that's always been... Um, you know, dealing with physical events to, to pivot this way because the staff would have to learn new skills. So, for example, with Francis, they have to learn now to do copywriting um, and to conceptualize uh, digital production. And digital production is not the same as physical events. We have to think uh, completely different how you would present an event that's on screen and to engage people that are sitting behind the screen. It's, it's very different from a live event. So as long as a company can survive, I think that's that, that's a great story itself. Okay, because you're also hosting and moderating your own <laughs> live uh, webinar type events. I'm wondering if there are any tips you've, you've picked up. Yes, yeah, so, so um, ever since the crisis, we have started to, or rather the editorial team has, has created this uh, series of webinars under the banner of TTG Conversations. We have done four uh, so far and the attendance have been rather good. Uh, we, we got about 1,000 people registering for the very first episode and about 600 plus who turned up to, to actually sit through the entire one hour. And then after that, we, we started this uh, five questions uh, video series uh, where I ask uh, industry opinion leaders five strong questions which, which will allow us to discuss you know, a hot topic in detail. I think these are some of the ways that um, traditional publications have to take to remain uh, present in this time. We've, we've got quite a bit of uh, positive feedback from our industry uh, readers uh, when we launched the uh, webinar and also the five questions video series. It allowed them to to join in conversations that matter to them at the moment. Uh, for the five questions video series, a lot of the feedback was that they know that it's just going to be five questions. It's going to be a short one. They don't have to sit through one hour or, or 90 minute session to learn something. So I think that's very motivating. For us, I think the lessons to be learned is that we just have to keep thinking of different ways to, to keep engaging our audience, to different ways to remain relevant. And changing up format. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, we, we could be doing well with five questions now, but maybe three or four months down the road, the, the marketplace might, might want something different again, and we just have to find out what the, the different thing is. Certainly keeping us on our toes. Um, <laughs> yeah. you've, also interviewed, <laughs> you've also interviewed many people in the industry. Uh, what would you say is the mindset the successful ones seem to have in common? No fear. So these, these leaders who have been able to, to pivot and to move ahead, the one common trait they all have is that they are not uh, afraid of making changes. I think, you know, as, as individuals, when we worry too much, we overthink things, we don't move. And I think these uh, business owners, to them, they can't afford to not move because that would mean uh, a certain death for their business so they have had to be really fearless in making changes. But at the same time, I'm also seeing the strongest business leaders, when in making changes, they also keep in mind the people. They try not to let go of staff or if harsh decisions need to be made, everyone has to agree 
and will agree to take a hard pill together in moving forward together as one. So I think the real leaders in, in crisis are the ones who can really round up the, the people and, and make hard changes when needed quickly. There is talk that when we get to the other side of this pandemic, the world will not be the same. Do you think the business events tourism industry will change significantly? I'm not sure because we did go through SARS. We never found a vaccine, but we survived that without too many visible scratches today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there will be change and I think it's going to be changed for the better because now we're seeing um, a lot of hybrid events. Before COVID, there were already some hybrid events uh, where very massive events uh, with space limitations had to have some form of an online uh, version for international people to attend, especially when travel is not feasible for them, whether it's cost uh, constraints or it's time constraints. But because of COVID, um, the hybrid model or even the virtual model is a necessity. Even organisers that were not so brave to try a hybrid model before that have now must uh, realize that they must do it, are realizing the benefits of hybrid because they, they, they see that they can expand their, their audience a lot more without uh, significant cost in, say, maybe hosting mm-hmm. certain people. So I think that uh, moving forward, as we emerge uh, from the crisis, even organizers may actually want to retain the hybrid model to allow uh, markets that uh, are constrained from travel to continue to attend and also, you realize that uh, when hybrid models are used, it's so much easier to get really good speakers from all over the world to attend because all they need is to turn on the computers, join a session at a certain time, and then switch off when they're done. In the past, you would have to arrange, a, you know, travel for them, accommodation for them, and they have to make time within the schedule to, for your event. So it's a lot easier to get really good speakers now. I think in the past also we had this perception that if that person is not there physically, you know, it wasn't as as good. Like, you know, someone had to be there in front of you to make it a proper event, you know, like you're there right in front of me. But that's become less of a prize now. So, you yeah. know, it's much more acceptable to have a better speaker that has come through a virtual yeah. medium. Yeah. I guess people were apprehensive of, um, you know, participating remotely before they really had a chance to, to try it. Um, of course, once you tried it and you get used to the concept, it's not so hard an idea to grasp. Of course, uh, you know, that said, personally, I think there's still a lot of benefits in meeting face-to-face. It really depends on what you want to, to get out of your participation in an event. If your idea is just to listen and learn, I think online participation is fine. But if your desire is to go and meet people and have extended conversations with them after a conference, because that's where the ideas really get sparked, right? So if that's your intention, a face-to-face you know, attendance is the best, really. Personally, I can't wait to get back into a conference. That's usually where business is made. Yeah, yeah, exactly, where business is made. Sometimes you just don't know who you might meet. Um, you could be at a coffee break and then you just meet your soulmate suddenly and, and <laughs> you know, a new business could be sparked, a new concept idea, a, a new content idea could be sparked, yeah. That's interesting. I'm sure there are a lot of stories in there as well that uh, you may have encountered over the years. Uh, <laughs> what are some of the best resources right now that you would recommend for corporate travel planners? Apart from TTG, of course. <laughs> well, there are many. Uh, we have very good fellow publications in this region. There's Mix, you know, there's, there's Biz Events uh, Asia that's doing a lot more videos now and they're quite inspiring. So check those out. But even within, say, the major travel uh, management companies like CWT, 
and Amex uh, Business Travel, they have their own publications that really shine a good spotlight on the business of managing travel. So do check those publications out too. Karen, I love your generous spirit. Final question, what destination are you missing that you would love to visit right now? Oh, Japan. (laughs) I'm known among my friends that I'm a huge fan of Japan. We used to spend, you know, uh, at least once a year over a two-week stretch as a holiday in Japan just to go into the remote areas to to do some hiking or to just um, relax and and be disconnected uh, with the world. So I'm really missing that. My little boy, my youngest boy, has not been able to travel ever since he was born because of the pandemic. So we're hoping to get him started to be a traveller, to be an avid traveller like the rest of us and family. Well, maybe with the green lanes that are opening between Singapore and Japan, you might be able to do that sooner rather than later. Yeah, the quarantines have to go first. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. <laughs> We're keeping our fingers crossed. Yeah, we are. Thank you so much for chatting. Really enjoyed catching up with you and just picking your brain a bit. How can people follow your work or get in touch with you? So uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. I'm quite active there. Or they can catch my content on ttgasia.com and ttgvice.com. We have a lot more titles than those two. So just but just get started on the TTG Asia and TTG Vice and you will discover the, all the other titles that we're also doing. It's a little bit like Disneyland, I think, <laughs> once you get in there. Thank you so much once again. Thank you, Adelaide, and, for uh, We me. will catch up hopefully soon, face to face. Yes, I missed that. Take care, Adelaide. If you've enjoyed listening, do spare a moment to subscribe and rate the show. And let me know if you have any questions so I can look for the right guests to address them in future. Finally, don't forget to join me again next week, same time, same place, to uncover more stories and strategies for a successful future.